Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 19. And what we're going to be doing tonight is continuing our discussion on real estate finance. The last time that we met, I basically started out by talking about the importance of real estate finance with the concept in mind that, uh, you know, most people do not have the two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in their back pocket that they can turn around and purchase a home. Therefore, what they're forced to do or, or need to do or have to do is, uh, borrow the money. And so consequently, uh, your knowledge as a real estate professional uh, is very, very important in understanding what kinds of financing programs are available, both conventional financing, uh, government types of financing and other types of special programs. And so it is very important that you understand that when you're working with your clients or even if you're purchasing a home on your own. The uh, other thing that we did is we talked about different types of notes. We talked about, or different types of, uh, if you will, notes. We talked about uh, an interest-only note uh, in which you're going to be paying just interest on a loan, no principal. We also talked about where you would be having a loan where you may be paying interest or amortizing a loan for a period of time, say a, uh, a loan that might be amortized or you've got to be making payments on it as if you could pay it off in 30 years, but it may have what we call a balloon payment that might be due in, say, five or six years, and that at that point in time you either had to pay it off or refinance it. And then we also talked about something called just a fully amortized fixed-rate loan where you're making payments of principal and interest with the idea in mind when you start off, you start making those payments, and at the end of a period of time, like 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years, your house is completely paid off. I think when we left, we were talking about some of the clauses that you would see in these financial instruments. I've, what I was trying to emphasize was the fact that when you do get a loan from somebody to purchase property or you do refinance property, that the lender actually looks at two primary things. They look at you as an individual, so they're concerned about how much money you make, what your credit rating is, how much money you owe, uh, how stable your job is, how long you've been in that job. So those are all really important things that they look at when you're getting a loan. They also look at the property. So they have somebody called a licensed real estate appraiser come out. They go out, they take a look at the property, look at properties in the surrounding neighborhood, what they've sold for, and they come up with an appraised value for the home so that the lender then therefore knows how much, if they need to, sell the house in the event of a foreclosure where you're not making the payments, how much they could potentially get. So we talked about different types of clauses that you would run into. We talked about things such as alienation clauses so that if you sold it to somebody else, the lender could call the loan all due and payable. We talked about some other things like prepayment penalties. So there were a lot of different topics that we discussed, again, in the last show. Today what we're going to be doing is talking about something called interest. Interest is the money that you pay for the privilege of borrowing money from somebody. Sometimes we even go a little bit further when we talk about this happens to be interest might be also considered to be rent for money. It's like renting money and having to pay some kind of a fee. So anyway, we're going to be talking about that, and in a minute here, I'll be moving over to my old friendly document camera, and we'll be going over just some basics. Now, keep in mind, I've mentioned this even in my real estate finance classes, a lot of the term, not terms, but the topics I use or I talk about, especially different types of loans, the lending 
system or the real estate finance is constantly in an evolutionary process. It's constantly changing. There are products that come along. They're popular for a while, and then later on they go away. Depending upon whether the market, whether interest rates are rising or declining, depends upon what kinds of uh, loans are in more demand. Uh, if the interest rates are extremely low, then people want to have really nice, solid, fixed-rate payment loans. On the other hand, if interest rates are very, very high, they're going to be looking to something like an adjustable-rate loan, uh, where the interest rate could possibly change in the future, but they can get in for a lower payment now, or even graduated payment loans. So there's a lot of different products out there in which ones are popular or being used at the time has to do with how the what the market conditions are like. So anyway, what I'm going to do is just a little bit here, show you a couple things on this page. First of all, if you were to break loans down into three major categories or major categories, the first one you would do, and that's what this is trying to illustrate, is you would have just what we consider to be an interest-only type of a loan. Interest-only. That means that every year you make your interest payments, whether you're making them on a monthly basis, a quarterly, semi-annually, or annually. It doesn't make any difference, but you're making payments and what you're doing is you're always calculating the interest based on how much money you owe. You're always never paying enough money to pay the loan off. In fact, all you're doing is paying just for the privilege of using the money. It's called interest only. You could pay on that loan for a year, two years, 10, 20, 50 years. It makes no difference, but at the end of that term, you still owe the original amount of money. But it's simple interest. And what they do is they just give you a little example down here couple terms that they introduce to you is that they identify in the formula, they give a couple letters here that mean things. So the I means interest, the P means principal, the R means rate, and the T means time. Going on from there, you can see right here it tells you what those are. It's interest, principal, times the rate, times the time. They give you an example here. They say, for example, if you wanted to know what the interest would be, on a loan that was for $80,000 at the rate of 12% interest, it would be 80 times 80,000 times 0.12 times the number of years that you had the loan for, and that would be the total interest you do pay on that loan for the privilege of borrowing that money for three years. That's simple interest. Okay. Uh, the other kind of loan that they talked about is something called a fixed rate loan, meaning that uh, a fixed-rate loan means that the rate doesn't go up or down. It's negotiated in the beginning. It stays the same throughout the term of the loan. Typically, we see these loans being very, very popular when interest rates are low. And uh, what happens is, is that the bank is maybe trying very hard to lend some money out. The Fed has really got their rates way down. So these become very popular during that period of time because you can get a fairly low-rate loan for an extended period of time, and the rate never changes. You can go to sleep every night and know that 10 years later, your interest rate's going to be the same. The next one that we're going to talk about here is we just want to introduce you, let me see if I can flip this over, to something called, and I'm going to pull up this page, where we talk about something called amortization. And I just want to show you this schedule that's in your book. And I want to just bring this conceptual idea across so that you understand that there's a lot. In, in the case of lending today, if you go to, you know, most any website uh, for a lender, you're going to find out that they have calculators that you just put in 
how much money you want to borrow, what the interest rate is, how many years you want to borrow from, and it'll tell you, give you all sorts of information. It'll tell you what your payments are going to be. It'll give you a schedule, show you how, much, how quickly you've got to pay the loan down. We'll be covering that in, in future discussions. But this is a chart. And these are things, charts, that we used to use a lot of before we had a, the, before calculators and computers became popular. In fact, this is sort of like a book that we used to call the Realty Blue Book. And what would happen is this blue book would just have nothing but a whole stack of pages with tables in them. And if I was a real estate agent and I was going to go out and figure out what somebody's house payment was going to be, I would sit there and figure out, okay, how much money are you going to borrow? And I would go to the blue book and use some factors, and I would figure out their monthly payments. And that blue book would have things like what my monthly payments were going to be, uh, if I paid the loan for so many years, how much I would owe at the end of the loan. But nowadays, the calculators and the computers do that for us. But I w wanted to see what this is. Typically, these kinds of charts will show you what the interest rate, so all of the information that's on this page is all based on the fact of you having a 7% loan. And you may say to me something like, you mean to tell me that there's a book that actually has a separate page for every interest rate, like 7, 7 and a quarter, 7 and a half, 7 and three quarters? Yes, the Realty Blue Book does. Down this column right here would show the term amount. It shows you how much money you're borrowing. This shows you for how many years. So this would be what your payments would be if you borrowed it for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, or 40 years. So the very simple chart, the way they have this one worked out, for example, they give you uh, an example here. They say if you're going to borrow $5,000 and you're going to borrow it for 30 years, then the amount of your monthly payment is going to be $33.27. Fairly simple to figure that out. If you're going to borrow it for 25 years, you'll notice that your payment is higher, $35.34. Or if you're going to borrow it for 20 years, it's $38.76. So in this one chart, you're able to figure out what your monthly payment is going to be. And they've done a lot of work here for you in this particular case, but this is basically how these charts work. Typically, they would usually be based on borrowing a certain amount of money, like $100 or $1,000 at a time, which your payment would be. So I just wanted to show you that that's something now that the calculators can do. So let me see where I am. Um, I've moved enough pages around here that I may get uh, a little bit confused. Okay, the next thing that before we leave this topic, I just want to bring this term up so that you know what this means. This is called negative amortization. Okay, you are going to hear this term when you borrow money. You are going to hear this term. This is something that they are going to talk about cautioning you with. And I'll read what this says. It says, negative amortization means that the interest rate charged charges are higher than the monthly payment. Negative amortization means that the loan payment does not cover the interest charges and the amount of unpaid interest is added to the, uh, to the unpaid loan balance. This is very simple if you really step back and think about it for a minute. What it means is, for example, if you borrow a hundred, I'm going to use numbers I can do in my head. If you borrow a hundred thousand dollars and the interest that you're supposed to pay for a year based on 10% is a thousand dollars per year. So in other words, 10% of a hundred thousand dollars is 10, uh, I'm sorry, 10, um, 10% per year. So if you borrow a hundred thousand dollars, 
for a year and you're paying 10% interest, then your interest that you're going to pay for that entire year is $10,000, 10% of 100000 Where negative amortization comes in is where you don't pay the whole $10,000. You pay something less than that. So, for example, if at the end of the year all I paid was $9,000, that would mean that I would have to actually add that $1,000 I had not paid back onto the unpaid balance, which would mean at the end of the first year, instead of owing $100,000, I would owe $101,000. Okay, so negative means that the balance gets higher instead of getting lower. That's what it basically means. Okay? Now, uh, so... Just to give you an idea what those terms are now, the next type of a mortgage, so we have interest only, we have fixed rate. The other thing that is very, very popular nowadays is something called an adjustable rate mortgage. Adjustable rate mortgage. This is probably one of the ones that's going to stay around for a fairly long period of time. The concept behind an adjustable rate mortgage is this, and I can't make it try to make it as simple as I possibly can. I was trying to tell some people this today. You know, when you really think about it, when you go to the bank with your money, your hard-earned money, you and you decide that you're going to deposit that money in that bank or a bank, you, at that time as an investor, you look for the best possible deal you can find. So what you're always looking for is that if you have a choice between putting your money, say, in Bank of America, who's going to pay you 3% interest, or Wells Fargo, who pays you 4% interest, with the risk being the same, you're going to go with the higher interest rate. So one of the point here is that one of the things that lenders always have to deal with is to try to get you to come in the door and put your money in the bank. You're an investor. If you don't do that, they have no money to lend out. Okay, So that's one part. The other part is when you take that hat off as the investor and you put the hat on that you're going to be a home buyer, now you're looking for, conversely, the other thing. You want to get the lowest rate of interest that you possibly can, the lowest. So here's the quandary with the bank. The bank has to sit there and look at this thing called a crystal ball (laughs) and try to figure out what they should do, how much the interest rates should be, how long they should be for. The problem is is that if the bank takes and lends you money, say at 5%, let's say maybe we've had several years where it's been at 5%. So they lend you money, and they lend it to you for 30 years. Well, guess what? If all of a sudden the interest rates start to go up, they still, they're only getting 5% from you. At the same time, they may have to be paying their investors 6 or 7%. So they're losing money. So consequently, what the lenders do is they say, you know what, here's the deal. If we can make the commitment to you to lend you the money to buy your house, but for a shorter period of time, then we're going to give you a lower rate. So if I'm going to give it to you for a fixed rate, I want to charge you 7%. But if I can can give you the same money, lend you the same money, but only have to uh, guarantee that your payments are going to be, you know, a certain amount, you know, for, say, three years, then I'm going to charge you less of an interest rate. So instead of charging you seven, they may charge you five, as an example. Now, the reason why they do that is that they don't have to really worry. They only have to make that commitment for three years. Instead of 30, they make it for three. So even if they've made a bad decision, even if they've made a bad decision at the end of three years, they're only stuck with three years and not stuck with 30 years. 
So consequently, that's why they give you a lower rate of interest. But there are a lot of things, and now, you know, a fixed rate loan is pretty simple and straightforward. An adjustable rate mortgage, what happens, you start having a lot of the other factors come in there. Like, for example, how high can the interest rates go? How low can the interest rates go? What kind, what do they look, what is the bank looking at? What kind of an indicator are they looking at to figure out whether they should raise or lower the rates? Okay, very, very important. So anyway, what we want to do is talk a little bit about what these factors are they look at. And these are how arms work or adjustable rate mortgages. Okay? The first thing that the lender is going to have to do at the time that they make you the loan, they're going to have to tell you what kind of an index or indicator they're going to look at to decide whether they should raise or lower your interest rate. We have lots of different types of indicators that we hear about all day long. Uh, some of the indicators that they talk about are things such as the cost of living index would be one of the indicators. We read about that in the paper all the time, the cost of living index. Uh, they could be talking about the district cost of funds index, the one-year treasury bill index, uh, the London Interbank Offered Rate Index, what we call the LIBOR index. In other words, all these indexes are doing is trying to figure out what the cost of money is. So the lender says, this is the index we're going to use. If the index goes up, okay, we're going to change the rate and make it go up. If the index goes down, we're going to re reduce the amount. Okay, so that's the first thing. We have to know what that index is. The lender has to show us what index they use, and we need to be able to look at the historical data to figure out how that reacts. Okay? The second thing that they do is what is the adjustment interval? In other words, how often can they make a change in the interest rate? That's where we get into whether it's a one-year adjustable, a three-year adjustable, a five-year adjustable, a seven, whatever. You'll find out that a one-year adjustable will have a lower interest rate than a three will. A three will have a lower rate than a five, and a five than a seven. The reason why is because they are making the commitment for a le uh, lesser period of time. Okay. The next thing that we need to know about when we're getting one of these loans is what is the cap rate? When these loans originally came out, at one time, there was really no cap rate. In other words, they could continue to raise the interest rates as high as they found necessary in order for them to make a profit. So what ended up happening is they said, no, 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 we can't, that's not doing anybody any good if you do that. It's not doing the consumer any good because they're, they're going to lose their house. You know, their credit rating is going to go down the drain. And you, the bank, when you raise those interest rates up that high, you're going to, because they can't afford it, you'll foreclose, but you're going to end up with a bunch of houses that you're going to have to maintain. That doesn't benefit anybody. So what we need to do and the consumer needs to know is how high are you going to raise those interest rates? How high can they go? What is the limit? What is the top cap? So that's another thing they need to describe to you. So you may start out at 5%, but it could go as high as 10, but it couldn't go any higher as 10, okay, any higher than 10. Next thing you need to know is what the margin is. The margin happens to be is that we have this index, and then we have a margin means, just like anything else, what's the difference between the index and how much they can charge? And the reason why is the index represents the cost of money. Their bank needs to make some kind of profit, okay? So, for example, let's say the index is at 5. The bank may have to charge 7, and their margin is 2%. That's the money that they use to pay 
you know, administrative fees and for coffee and donuts and, you know, salaries and everything else. Okay. That's the margin. That's, and they pay those fees and then out of the margin also comes where their profit is coming from. Okay. The basic advantages to arms. What are the advantages? The basic advantage to it is, is the fact that, you know, people that are getting ready to buy a house can get in with a lower payment. But as I stress to a lot of people, this is not a panacea. This is not, this is not the, you know, the, the best solution in the world. One of the things that you need to do is any time that a client is going to get a loan where the interest rates can go up, that customer, that client needs to understand that risk. This is the kind of person that has a very good expectation that their income is going to go up sometime in the future. You don't want to put people into these kinds of loans that have got shaky credit, barely can make the monthly payments and put on the, put food on the table now. You don't want to do that. That'll only make their situation worse. And I am here to tell you that there are people that in many cases financially don't really need to own a home right now. Because when you buy a home, typically your house payment is going to be higher than your rent payment. And also, when you buy a home, you're going to find out that you do not have a landlord to call to fix things anymore. You're going to have to be able to either hire those people, like when you get a leak and the plumbing leaks, or you need something done, like uh, you know the water heater needs to be replaced, or your electricity needs to work. So you either need to have the tools and the knowledge to know how to fix it, or you have to have the money to be able to hire somebody to do it. Okay? Like I was telling the class today, years ago, one of the things that FHA tried to do is they had a, a program called FHA 235. And they designated entire areas for people that had low income. They didn't mix people together. They just designated the whole area. And what they did is they turned around and they said, everybody that lives in that area only makes a certain amount of money and can move in here. These people were moving out of being tenants into being homeowners. And it was kind of interesting because common sense dictates that, you know, these people haven't had experience doing certain things. So after everything fell apart, the housing areas looked terrible. They ended up being falling completely apart. Uh, you know, houses were in disrepair. Did they go back and say, well, you know what? The people barely qualified for the loan. They had no background or knowledge how to fix things. And we put them all in one area. That was a mistake. That's why you see today where there's more of this, hey, let's put the, let's put people that are buying their first homes with some, in some other neighborhoods so that we have more of a stable, neighborhood. Not that we have one area and it's all low-income housing. They found out that that doesn't work, okay? But that was an example of putting people in a home, you know, where they barely qualify. It doesn't do anybody any good. Nobody does any good. Anyway, that's an adjustable rate mortgage. And uh, let me make sure I'm on track here with these pages, okay, so I don't lose myself here. Uh, after the adjustable rate mortgage, they do talk about several other kinds of mortgages that you may run into. And again, how popular these are and how many of them are offered all depend upon the economic situation at the time and people's what people want to get accomplished. One of them is called a graduated payment mortgage. Okay, Graduated payment means that you're going to start out with a certain payment, say $1,000 a month. That's what your payment's going to be. That's what you negotiate when you get the loan. Next year, your payment is going to go up. It may go from 1,000, say, to 1,050, or 1,000 to 1,100. 
or 1,000 to 1,050, next year 1,075 to 1,100, but it's going to stair step up. It's going to go up like a set of stairs. The concept behind this is that we have people, again, that have good credit ratings. That's important. In other words, they've proved what they've done. You know how they spend their money. They have a good, reliable job. And you know that based on their education and their background or whatever, that their possibility of their income going up in the future is pretty good. So that as, the, as their income goes up, so goes up the house payment. And what this helps is it helps these families get into their first house, okay, and then start working their way up. Okay, FHA has a program like that. It's called FHA, I believe, 245 program, okay? The next kind of a program you may see is something that has been written about quite a bit. It's something called biweekly mortgage, 26 payments. And there's calculators you can run this on. And the concept is this, is that you're always paying, your interest is always calculated on the unpaid balance. Okay? What does that mean? That means if I have borrow $100,000 and I make my first payment, and part of that payment reduces my principal by $100. The next time I make my payment, the interest is not calculated on $100,000. It's calculated on $99,900. So the concept is, is that if I make my payments more frequently, I'm paying my principal down quicker. Okay? And you can do calculations under biweekly, and you may find out, depending upon how they're set up, you could take a mortgage just by paying the payments more frequently and reduce a 30-year mortgage down to maybe a 21, 22, 23-year mortgage just because you're making them more frequently. Uh, so keep that in mind. You may find that might be something of interest to people. Usually people that want to plan to pay their loans off soon, they want to get ready to retire, this might be something that they might consider. The other kind of a mortgage you may have is something called a fixed, a 15-year fixed rate and adjustable rate loans. Again, this concept here is where you get the loan because you're paying, you're, get, you're, you're agreeing to pay the loan off sooner. The real incentive for you is that, is that not only are you going to pay it off sooner, but the bank should give you a little bit lower of an interest rate. Not a significant amount, but quite, you know, a fairly decent amount. What will happen is, is it's sort of like a forced savings. What it's doing is, is it's forcing you to pay the, the mortgage off quicker. In other words, you're asking the bank, you're saying to him, listen, look, give me a 15-year mortgage. I'll make the payments, you know, much higher payments, but I'll have it paid off quicker. Uh, uh, a program like this would work really well if you, for example, wanted to retire at 65. You happen to be 50 years of age. You wanted to make sure your house was paid off. You were getting ready to buy a house, and you said, you know what, I can bite the bullet now. Uh, you know, I'm in those years where I'm starting, to, you know, a lot of people in the last few years of their employment start to make their, you know, it's where they usually get their promotions and start making more money. Hey, I'll make the higher payments, and when I hit 65, my house is paid off, okay? So that might be one of the reasons why somebody may want to have a sooner-term loan. One thing that I want to caution you about with those loans, though, is keep in mind that you could also take a regular loan and make it a 15-year loan just by making extra payments, which might help you where you're making the payments for a couple of years and then, God forbid, but something may happen. You get sick, you get disabled, you lose your job. Instead of you going to the bank and saying, listen, I can't make the payment, you can just go back and start making your normal uh, payments based on 30 years. So it might be a good fallback process that you can go through. 
another thing that's becoming extremely popular now is something called a reverse annuity mortgage. There's a lot of information out on this. Uh, the American Association of Retired People, as we affectionately call them, AARP, has a lot of literature on this. If you go to Wells Fargo's website, they have tons of information on, uh, on this. The concept behind it is that we have somebody that happens to be house rich but cash flow poor. <laughs> In other words, uh, a classic example I see is somebody that's maybe worked for a number of different companies, never really put quite enough money away for retirement, gets to the point where they want to retire. They have a house that they have a lot of equity in, but they don't have, maybe they're just trying to make it on Social Security. So what they want to do is they want to stay in the house and they want maybe want to not have to make the payments anymore or they want the house to provide them some form of income. And then the idea is that when they die, okay, what will happen is usually you get this together joint with your, with your, say, your husband and wife. So if the husband dies, the wife can stay in the house. When the wife dies, then the house either has to be sold to pay the loan off, uh, you know, ha essentially has to be sold and the loan has to be paid off. Okay, or if you decide to sell the house, it has to be paid off. Again, these are becoming very popular. Why? Because people that are my age call the baby boom generation are in that stage now where we're all starting getting close to retirement. There's a lot of caution with these, though. There's a lot of stuff. In fact, I believe that it's FHA sponsors these programs, and they are saying, for example, that they want to make sure that you are trained or attend a training class on how these work. Because what they don't want to do is read in the newspaper how somebody got taken advantage of and lost their house. We don't want that to happen. So we want to make sure that our senior citizens, which I'm not that far away from because you can qualify for this once you're 60, 62, you want to make sure that you're not going to lose your house or somebody's going to be taking advantage of you. That's why they want to make sure you're fully informed. Okay, next thing. Some of the other things that you'll hear about talked about when you get a loan is something called points. Okay, points are 1% of the loan fee. Okay, you are going to have different kinds of points. Uh, you're going to have points that are considered to be things like loan fees where the lender will say, I'm going to charge you a one-point loan origination fee. I'm going to charge you one-point uh, one uh, loan processing fee. Okay, so that could be a point. Or it can be where you're paying points to actually get the yield up on the loan. And those typically you'll find where maybe a builder is going to agree to buy your loan down or buy your interest rate down. Okay? So they may put up five or ten thousand dollars to lower your interest payment. And that five or ten thousand dollars would be considered to be points. And we'll talk more about that in the future. Okay. Um, okay. I think that's pretty much it. You know, uh, we've talked about loan fees and everything else. Okay, the next thing that we want to talk about is security devices. Okay? When you go and get a loan on real property, when you go to get that, there's two documents that you sign. One of them is a note. That note we talked about the last time. That's where you say things like, I, Pat Hogarty, hereby promise to pay Bank of America back $200,000 at 5% interest for the next 30 years, okay, or 360 payments, okay, and I promise to pay it on the first of the month. If I'm late, I, you know, after the 15th, that you can charge me a fee, 
I promise not to sell the house without getting, you know, I'm, in other words, this is a note. This is where I'm promising all this stuff. This note is not recorded. Nobody sees this except for the person borrowing the money and the person that's lending the money. Okay, that's, that's it. Now, to secure that, you have to have what we call a security device. There's two security devices that we hear about all the time. One is called a mortgage, and one is called the deed of trust or a trust deed. In California, we do not use mortgages. Almost as far as I know, we don't use them. We use trust deeds. In other states, we use mortgages. A mortgage is a two-party instrument. What it is is it has somebody called the mortgagor and somebody called the mortgagee. Okay? What ends up happening is that the, that the people, what, that, what happens is, is that that mortgage is a security device that the lender is allowed to take and foreclose on in the event of non-payment. Okay? So that's why they talk about on this page, if I can get this up here, they talk about the different types of security devices. Okay? We have mortgages. In California, these are the financial instruments. We have three types. We have mortgages. We have trust deeds or deeds of trust. And we have something called land contracts. Okay? Mortgages are typically a two-party instrument. They're used in a lot of states, but not here. Trustees we use in California. You have a trustor. That's the person that borrows the money. You have a beneficiary. That's the person that lends the money, like the bank. And you have a trustee. The trustee is the one that holds title to the property, if you will. And in the event that you don't make your payments, it's the trustee that forecloses on the property. Okay? The third instrument you have is something called a land contract. The people that popularly use a land contract in California is a government organization called CalVet. And what CalVet does for California veterans is that they actually buy the house after you've chosen it. They have title to the house. You have a land contract. And after you have paid the house off totally, then what they do is they give you the deed to the house. Okay, that's what they have, CalVet. Okay, so what I'm going to do is just show you these pages here. There's two pages in your book. One is for mortgage, and one is, and they're right next to other. One is for mortgage, and one is for trustee. And all I want to point out here when you look at these, because it looks a little bit confusing, this is for a mortgage and a trustee, and I can't, I can't seem to uh, blow these up as well as I want to, but I want you to see the two pages, okay? What they do, if I can get them lined up quite quite correctly here, okay, what they're doing is they're showing you the comparing the two of them, okay, the difference between the two of them, okay? So this is a trustee, this is a mortgage, they're telling you here who the parties are, for example, and a trustee. The parties are a trustor, a trustee, and a beneficiary. On a mortgage, you have a mortgagor and a mortgagee. On this one right here, it says legal title. I know you can't see this because I'm sort of covering this up uh, quite a bit. Okay. Let me see if I get this as close as I can. Okay, legal title. Legal title, in this case, I know you can't see this, but it's conveyed to the, tr the trust to the trustee, so it means that this third party trustee holds title while you live in the house. You have the right to live in it and enjoy it. 
It's just that somebody else has title to it at that time. You pledge that title. You pledge it as security for the loan. Under a mortgage, you have the title is held by the mortgagor, and the mortgagor also has the right to live in the house. Okay? All I want you to get out of this, though, is that there is a comparison. That's what's important. It talks about the difference, if I can slide this down here, of things like the statute of limitations. It talks about what's the remedy for a default. So if you do have somebody that defaults, in the case of a trust, of, of a deed of trust, you have a trustee sale, okay? And in the case of a mortgage, you have a court-ordered sale, okay? So the point is, is that they go back and forth and they compare the difference between the two of them. And what you're, what's important for you is to see that there is a difference, okay? In a, in a, in a, in a deed of trust, what happens is, is you have, it's a statutory foreclosure procedure, meaning that you follow a set of laws. You don't go to court, you don't hire an attorney, you just, the, the, the lender says, you know what, Pat hasn't been making his payments, I've tried, did everything I did to get a hold of him, he does not responding, bang, file a foreclosure procedure. You know, file, file, start the foreclosure. You don't go to anybody, you just start following what the law says to do. At the end of that period of time, if you've done everything correctly, you stand on the courthouse steps and you sell the house to the highest bidder. If you have a mortgage, on the other hand, you have to go to court and you have to have a judge make a decision what to do. That's called the judicial foreclosure versus a trustee, which is a statutory foreclosure. Okay? So anyway, I want you to just see, all you should really get out of this is that you need to compare those two pages side by side in order for you to understand what the differences are between the two of them, okay? All right. Now, the next thing that I wanted to show you here is that this, what this document is, what it looks like. Let me see if I can kind of blow this up here. This is a deed of trust, okay, an assignment of rents. This is just the document. I think all you should really get out of this when you initially read this is to say, when you get a loan, either to refinance an existing loan or to buy a house, what's going to happen is you are going to have this document is going to be recorded against your house. You're going to sign the document, and what you're essentially doing is you're pledging that house as security for that loan. That's what you're doing. You're saying, in the event of a default, you have the right to sell my house to get your money. That's what this is doing. Okay? This is called the deed of trust. Okay? Or trust deed. Right? All right. Now, this next page just shows you when you do have a foreclosure, what happens. Okay? In a trustee, and keep in mind that in California, again, we don't have mortgages. Okay, we talk about getting a mortgage. We talk about going to the mortgage company. We talk about burning the mortgage when we pay it off, but we don't have mortgages. What we have is we have notes and deed of, deeds of trust. Okay, this is just showing you the three parties to the to the when you get a loan. Over here, the person that borrows the money, the borrower, me, when I go to the bank, I'm called the borrower. I'm also called the trustor that, in this document. That's what I am. I'm called the trustor. So if you read the document, it says the trustor is Pat Hogarty. That's what I am. 
The person that lends the money, like the bank, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, whoever, they're called the beneficiary. And then finally, the trustee, which is an independent third party. Many times this happens to be a title company. In fact, title companies will have departments that just take care of this. They'll hold what we call bare naked title. Now, all bare naked title means is this, is that they have title to the property, but you as the own, you as the borrower still have the right to live in the house. That's what we mean by bare naked, bare naked title. It means that they have the title, they can sell it if they're told to sell it, but you still can live in the house while you're making payments or until it's paid off. Okay? All right. Now, Keep in mind that once you record that deed of trust, that stays at the county recorder's office forever. In other words, you can go down to the county recorder's office and get a copy or find the deeds of trust on properties that have been bought and sold and bought and sold and bought and sold. They still stay there. When you pay this off, you don't go down to the county recorder's office and say, give me that deed of trust and, you know, crumple it all up and set it on fire and throw it away. No, it stays there. So what you have to do when you pay it off, in order for you to show that you've paid it off and that that deed of trust no longer uh, is uh, in existence, is you have to have something called a deed of reconveyance. And what that deed of reconveyance does is it goes and it grants title back to you as an individual. It says, and who records this? What happens is, is, for example, if I live in my house for 30 years and I pay the house off completely and I make my last month, my, make my last payment, then the lender records this deed of reconveyance that essentially says, you know that deed of trust we recorded 30 years ago? That's no longer any good. It's been completely paid off. It's been satisfied. Okay, and that's called the deed of reconveyance. We record these deeds of reconveyance every time we pay off a loan. So, for example, if I have a house that I've lived in for five years, I have a loan on it, somebody comes along, buys the house, gets a brand-new loan, pays off my existing loan, there's a deed of reconveyance filed. Okay? So this stuff happens all the time. Okay? Now, talking about the foreclosure, and probably what I should do is just give you a quick rundown on that. For the foreclosure process... What happens is this, and this little chart just shows this in its most simplest form. What happens is, is that after the lender has done everything they can to try to get you to make the monthly payments, and, you know, as I usually say, what should happen is that, for example, you may not be making your monthly payments for a number of different reasons, you know, for example, a lot of us today, bought, when we buy a house, it's taking both the husband and the wife in order to, to work in order to make payments. Both have to work. So the problem is, is if the husband loses his job or the wife loses her job or uh, one of them uh, gets sick and can't work anymore, that has a major effect on their, their ability to pay, make the house payment. So it could possibly be where maybe... Uh, you know, maybe uh, the husband's 40-some years old and had a heart attack, and what's happening is he's off work recuperating, and he's not getting enough money in order to make the payment, okay? He may be off for a month or two, and then what's going to happen is he may, once, once things are going well again and he's back to work, to start making payments again. But the fact is, is that if for some reason 
you're not making payments, and finally the lender has done everything in their power to try to work with you, try to negotiate with you, maybe hopefully even offer to maybe do something to rectify the situation, and you can't make the payments for whatever reason, then the lender asks the trustee to go ahead and file a notice of default to start the process working. Okay? That starts as we call the clock running. Okay? The next thing that happens after that notice has been, been issued, we have a three-month minimum period of time in which you can reinstate that loan. For example, so if you were off for two months because you were sick, now you're back to work, now you can start payments again, you could go back and incur the default. Okay? And what you're going to probably have to pay is late fees, interest payments, if there's been any other fees that have been incurred by the trustee, anything like that, you'll have to pay. You can reinstate the property. But during this period of time, this three-month period of time, you can just call, say, here's the check, here's the money. I want to reinstate and go back in good standing again. After that period of time, there's what we call t 21 days of publishing. This is where it's done in a newspaper of general circulation. Typically, it's... Uh, I think in, in Sacramento, you'll see it in papers like the Daily Recorder is one of them. It's a legal paper. And what will happen is it's published. There's, a, there's a, a, a notice put on the house, okay? In other words, there's everything being done to let everybody know that the house is for sale. And I think they do it for two, a couple of reasons. One is if for some reason if they've tried to get a hold of the owner, they're trying everything in their power to let the owner know, including putting a notice on the front door, okay? They've put the ad in the paper. The ad in the paper lets everybody know also hopefully creates a market for the house, you know, so people know that it's going to be for sale. What ends up happening then is that after the publishing period, then finally the day after we have a trustee sale. And I remember a long time ago standing down there at the courthouse in Sacramento at 9 o'clock in the morning, and you would see people there with briefcases standing around the courthouse steps with papers in their hand reading these documents and what they were doing is they were conducting a, f a foreclosure sale. And that foreclosure sale could be done at the courthouse. It could be done at, a, at the trustee's office. It could be done right in front of the house. But the idea is, is that the house is auctioned off. And what happens is whoever the highest bidder is, that's the person that gets the house. What happens with the money that they get? The order in which the money is used is first it pays for all the costs of the trustee's sale. So the trustee gets paid all the fees they've incurred. The second thing it does is that the lender that's owed the money, they get paid with all the fees that are owed to them. Any money that's left over after that goes to the second lien holder. Any money that's left after that will go to the owner of the property. Okay? So that's how the process works. Uh, okay. Let's see. If there's, and there's some other stuff in there that just explains what I just got finished talking about in here. Um, they do also talk about other kinds of loans that you may get. Some of them are called second trust deeds. The reason why we call them seconds or we call them junior liens is because that they are behind the first loan. So is it possible for me to have a first loan on a house for $50,000 and a second loan for sixty? Yes. Okay, it has to do with who recorded their loan first. Okay. So that's where we get the term first. The reason why we call a second a second is because they were the second one or they were the junior to that. Okay? 
So you will have junior liens. Sometimes they can be because, for example, maybe like in today's market, maybe somebody needs to sell their house really bad. And they say, you know what? I found out the loan is assumable. Okay, I've talked to the lender. You can assume the loan, take it over, and what I'll do is I'll carry my equity in the form of a second note. So that's one thing you could do. The owner could be carrying their equity. It might be like, I'm going to sell the house, and I have $50,000 equity. Give me $5,000 down payment, and I'll carry my equity for five years in the form of a, of a note and deed of trust. For $45,000, interest rate will be 10% per year. Okay, that would be a second. Okay, so that would be one kind of a junior loan. Other kinds of junior loans that you will see are things like home equity loans would be another one. Typically, these are where people uh, are usually needing some money. Uh, and when we say home equity, and many times they may not want to pay off the first. So, for example, they may have one of those really dynamite fixed-rate 5% loans. And then they got a lot of equity, and they'd say, I'd be nuts to pay off that loan. So, but I need some money out of the house. I need to buy money to put a new roof on, put a swimming pool in the backyard, buy a new car, pay for the kids' tuition, something. So what they do is they say, you know what? I'll leave the first in place. Great loan, fixed rate, interest rate, got it at the best time, and I'm going to get an equity line of credit or an equity loan against the house. That becomes a junior loan or a second. Okay? Talk about that. Okay, and let me see whatever else we have in here that I need to mention. Okay, um, just watching the clock. And there are a lot of other things. This chapter is loaded with a lot of information. Um, I just want to make sure that I cover this stuff. Okay, um, and I think I'm getting... Okay. Okay, let me see. Okay. Okay, we do have, from a consumer standpoint, we do have some laws that want to make sure that consumers are well protected and well informed as to what they are getting themselves into. Okay. And there is a law called Regulation Z, one to four units. Okay, it doesn't apply to agriculture. It doesn't apply to business. It's called the Truth in Lending Act, also known as Regulation Z. It was enacted to protect consumers by requiring that the lender, the creditor, tell the borrower how much he or she is paying for credit. Okay? This enables the consumer to make comparisons between various credit sources. Regulation Z also states that the lender or the creditor must express all related financing costs as an annual percentage rate. Okay? Now, what happens is, is that when you go down to get a loan from a lender, what they will do is they will give you something called a best faith estimate or good faith estimate, however you want to call it. In there, it should contain... All of the things that are materially affecting the loan, all the costs, their estimates. It should cover things such as, you know, what is the appraisal going to cost? What are the escrow fees, the title fees? How many points, you know, what are my fees? How much am I making on the deal? What are the points I'm going to pay? Are there any documentary fees to record things like grantee, or not grantees, but deeds of trust or notices of, or deeds of reconveyance? Any costs at all. 
The other thing that they have to do is they have to express the interest rate that they're going to charge you in what we call an annual percentage rate. Now, if you go and pick up any newspaper that has mortgage, that is talking about you borrowing money, whether it's to buy a house or anything, what they're going to do, even if you're going home tonight and you see one of those electric signs lit up for diatech.com on borrowing money, you're going to see they're going to quote two things. They're going to quote to you the interest rate, and they're going to quote to you the annual percentage rate. They are not the same. The interest rate is the thing that that's what your, in, what your payments are calculated on. Okay, Your annual percentage rate is the rate that includes the cost of getting the loan. Okay, So they have to disclose that to you, and I'm looking to see if they have this in here. Yeah. This is probably very, very important for you to understand. It gets to be very confusing because you're going to see it in all the literature, annual percentage rate. The APR is a measure or a relative cost of credit expressed in an annual rate. If the APR appears in an advertisement, no other disclosure of terms need to be stated because it includes all credit costs. So what's important here is to read this part. It says the annual percentage rate represents the relationship between the total finance charges, interest rate, points, and loan fees, and the total amount of finance, finance the total amount you borrowed, expressed as a percentage. It must be computed to the nearest one quarter of a percent and must be printed on all loan forms more conspicuously than the rest of the printed material. Okay? The point here is that the concept behind an annual percentage rate is for the consumer to hopefully... Notice I said hopefully, be able to compare one program to the other. Because if you go down to get a loan, what will happen is one lender may charge one rate or one fee for an appraisal. For, so, for example, I may go to one bank and they may say, I'll say, well, what's your, what's your appraisal fee? And they'll say $300. Okay. What's your escrow fee? They give me, a fi- they give me all these figures. Then when I go over to compare the loan with another company, I find out, hey, wait a minute. This bank, this bank charges a higher appraisal fee to me, but their loan origination fees are lower than the other guy is. So I start to go crazy. I say, how can I compare one thing against the other? So the concept behind the APR is that that is an independent indicator that you can use to compare one loan versus the other. And the theory behind it, at least, is the fact that the one with the lower APR should be the lower cost loan. Okay, you need to keep that in mind. That's the pur- purpose of it. Okay, so anyway, I think we're getting not too far from the end. Okay, it goes down from here and it says interest rates can be calculated by any different methods that can be very confusing to the borrower. The APR standardizes the figures, calculating all rates by the same formula. Borrowers should look at the APR figure usually in a box to compare and find the best APR available. Okay, the best. Okay, um, I think. Okay, then down here it just talks about just advertising uh, your loan rates. It just says uh, anyone placing an advertisement for consumer credit must comply with the advertising requirements of the Truth in Lending Act. Disclosures must be made clearly and conspicuously, if only the annual percentage rate is disclosed. Additional disclosures are not required if, however, the advertisement contains any one of the following terms 
then the ad must disclose the other terms. Okay? So the point here is you can't tell somebody what the monthly payments are and leave something else out. Okay? So, for example, if you're going to tell them the amount or percentage of, the, of any down payment, then you also need to tell them the number of payments and the period of repayment because you're only giving them one piece of information. They need to have your payments are going to be this for 30 years, okay, so that you know what the difference is. The amount of any payment and the amount of finance charge. So you need to have all of that disclosed to you. Uh, when people get ready to look for a loan, I typically recommend to people because they ask me all the time, I say, you know what, go to some place where you feel comfortable to start. does not mean that that's going to be the place where you're going to get your loan. But go to some place where you feel comfortable. Go to your bank. Go to your credit union. Sit down with them. Say to them, you know, hey, listen, I'm looking to buy a house. I want to buy a house. I'm looking, you know, how much can I afford to buy? And they can at least give you a rough idea in the beginning. They may ask you some basic questions such as, or you ask your clients some basic questions. You know, how much money do you earn? How much money do you owe? They may very well actually, depending upon how serious you are, may, or if you ask them, they may run a credit report to see what your score is. And then they'll be able to tell you, hey, you know what, based on the income that you say that you earn and based on what you, your financial information you have, you can afford to buy about a $300,000 house. If you buy a $300,000 house, these are the different kinds of programs we have available. We have a fixed rate program, an adjustable rate program, on and on and on. Okay? The other thing to keep in mind, too, whenever you go to go in and talk to a lender, is to keep in mind that you're talking to somebody that really knows what they're doing. Because when you go in there, you may be looking for a specific kind of a loan, only to find out that there might be another program that's better for you than what you knew about. So you may go in there and read something in the paper, and they may say, oh, you know, you're a teacher. Did you know that there's a special program for this teacher? Or did you know that this is, uh, you know, they'll tell you what those different programs are. And so that way you know what is the best program for you to qualify for. And you want to do that with your clients, too. So anyway, we talked about quite a bit of material in here. There's quite a bit to real estate finance. That's why we have it as a sole, its own course, if you will. Uh, what we're going to be talking about the next time is we're going to be talking about something called financial institutions. And it's going to become important that you understand what these institutions are and how they react. In other words, I believe we're going to be talking about things like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the Federal Reserve, different types of companies, different types of interest rates, things like that. So it's really important that we, that, you know, that we cover that material because you'll be dealing with that. With that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here the next time. Have a nice day.